0: you're listening to creators in saigon a podcast based in the rapidly modernizing city of saigon vietnam i'm dana and together with my co-hosts toacy and nico we interview the most inspiring creative entrepreneurs saigon has to offer on topics about life relationships creativity business health and more we are all coaches specializing in different areas but our common goal is to inspire you to reach your full potential in these areas and improve the quality of your life. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show.
1: Welcome back to Creators in Saigon. We are in a new studio right now with our guest Kimi Berhanu. Kimi is a Vietnamese Ethiopian born and raised in Australia, badass founder of her sustainable fashion brand Dynasty the Label and host of her YouTube show Where the Magic Happens. Today we're going to talk about her childhood in a mixed culture home, her journey with her ethical fashion brand, and more. So on this episode, you have me, Dana, and Tuacy co-hosting. So welcome, Kimmy. Thank you so much for letting us use your space here. It's a nice break from our karaoke studio.
2: How are you today? Very well. It is a pleasure to have you both here. Yes. Super excited to know about what's going to happen next. (laughs) Amazing. So are we. So
1: I'm just going to kick it off with asking, what was it like living in a mixed culture home? And how were the Vietnamese and Ethiopian cultures
2: sort of brought to life for you in your home? So things have been pretty complicated from a young age. My parents were only together up until I was four. And so during those first few years of my life, I would speak Amharic with my father. And then when they split up and my father went back to Ethiopia, I'd only be speaking Vietnamese with my mom. Hmm. So not having my father there meant that I lost touch with, my Ethiopian roots, Hmm. but because my mother was there and her side of the family was there, they definitely instilled into me Vietnamese culture, the language, and how things were done. And did you keep in touch with your father or...? Not in the slightest because the way they split up, it was quite messy. Hmm. So when my father left, he ended up taking all of our family savings and oh. just going on the first plane back to Ethiopia. Mm. And he did try to write a few times to reach out to my mother, but obviously she wasn't going to have any of it. Mm. Yeah, she'd yeah. read the letters and just rip them up straight away.
1: Yeah, good
2: for her. What, what kind of message did that send to you? That we didn't need to have a father in our lives, especially if it was one of that quality.
3: Mm.
1: that's a very good lesson. So growing up in Australia, were there many other
2: Vietnamese people in your community?
1: Or not so so the
2: first few years, up until nine years old, I was living not in Melbourne, which is a very multicultural mm. part of Australia. I was living in Geelong, which is about an hour, an hour and a half away from where amazing things happen, because that's really where I consider myself home. But the first nine years of my life, I was living in a small town. This was... Some people would consider it rural as well, rural Australia. And we were one of two families that weren't white. Wow. Yeah. So it was pretty strange and a little isolating because when you grow up, you see that you are different, that your family is Mm -hmm. different, but you don't particularly understand, especially if no one around you talks about race and belonging and being different, looking different.
3: Mm -hmm. Were were kids rough
4: at school with you?
2: Uh, They weren't rough, but they were... They definitely treated me like I was an outsider. Mm. Yeah. Did you get
4: any bad nickname that you didn't know about?
2: Not nicknames, but I definitely did get bullied. Yeah. And for me, my way of coping was to just throw back at them. Oh, wow. So whatever label they gave me, I'd be like, yeah, I am. So what? Mm.
1: Yeah. And where did I you have... get that? As a child, that's a lot of confidence to have. And
2: many other children tend to let that really get to them. I think because from a young age, I always read. And I always... Because I was... Always reading, I was educating myself as well outside of school hours. I remember walking to school and I'd have a book in my hands. I wouldn't even look at the road as I crossed, you know, <laughs> I'd just be in my own little world. And being exposed to so many different points of view, it made me more aware that this is just temporary. Mm-hmm. These people are not going to be here forever and they they have no say in how I see myself. Mm. I always knew from a young age that I wouldn't be there much longer.
1: Did anyone in particular introduce you to these stories or how did you find yourself kind
2: of attracted to these stories? So in Vietnamese culture, and I'm sure not just in Vietnamese culture, but in quite a few other Asian and other cultures as well, education is highly valued because education is the key to a better life. Mm -hmm. So from a young age, my mom, she would take us to the local library on the weekends. And I just go crazy, run around the aisles, Mm -hmm. pick up this book, that book, and just have free reign.
1: Mm, Amazing. And now you are in a position in your life in a very creative space. And we're going to talk about your business a little later on. But when you were a child, were you also always very creative and into fashion and things like that?
2: Into color, yes. Into color. Yes. Anything sort of shiny sequins, anything vibrant. There were different phases that I went through. So as a child, it was just, I wanted to dress like a rainbow. (laughs) I wanted people to notice me. And I felt at the time, because I had so much energy and I didn't especially know where to direct it, I just let it spill from the edges.
1: Mm.
2: Why do you think you wanted people to notice you? Because I felt like life was too short to keep to yourself and things are better shared. And when you're colourful, when you're a little bit strange, people look, people are curious mm. and generally people will ask you a question, approach you and break out of their little bubbles.
1: If you could look back at the, the younger Kimmy and the Kimmy today,
2: what would you say to younger Kimmy? <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I just want to thank myself and congratulate myself for just having such an amazing attitude. From such a young age, mm. I remember being eight, nine years old, and having bullies yeah, yeah. chase me around the yard, and I just shout back at them. <laughs> I wasn't scared, mm-hmm. you know.
4: You look not scared at all. You look so joyful and.
2: So of course, away, yeah. and when you have so much joy yeah. and so much love for life, for yourself, yeah. for those around you, it doesn't it doesn't hurt you.
4: Yeah, yeah. you're keeping that child alive. It's definitely, yeah. mm-hmm.
2: definitely. When that child dies, I die. <laughs> mm. Yes. Yeah. Coming to
1: Vietnam, first of all, what year did you come to Vietnam? Uh, This is my
2: fourth year. Okay. Yeah, so I came here pretty much when I did my studies in university, I knew I didn't want to stay in the country Mm. because because of all the books that I'd read, I knew that there was so much life waiting for me outside of Australia. Mm. I felt like I'd already made the most of the situation and now it was time to expand my horizons. Mm. When I studied in university, did a study abroad year because like my main reason for going to university was one to get a degree and I had no idea like what in Mm -hmm. you know I remember my mom she told me what job you have after (laughs) 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 honestly I had no idea Mm -hmm. so I decided just to do what felt right and that was study French Mm -hmm. and because of that I spent a year in France as well yeah. Wow. yeah, when where, I came back, in Lyon. Lyon, okay, yeah, very good.
4: Yeah, I loved How was it? It?
2: Incredible, yeah. incredible. Honestly, I think one year was a bit too long because six months you can still live la Vie en Rose, mm. so like things were still really sweet and so really. Mode, yeah. Exactly, th- okay. through the filter, but once you hit the six month mark, then you have to deal with things such as bureaucracy. I even got into a car accident, mm-hmm. and like dealing with that, dealing with insurance, and just yeah Mm
1: -hmm. yeah, it was a lot what led you to wanting to study French
2: Uh, just because of some of my books that I read Mm. some French literature is incredible Mm. you know there's so many amazing authors out there who have the most complex strange twisted ideas and that really affected me and the music as well
1: Mm.
2: Yeah. yeah I just saw French culture and French literature is like the coolest thing out there. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. where do you feel at home the most? Here for sure. Yeah. 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 I feel there's just something so vibrant and alive and just full of potential here in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. This is the place where I can really create the life that I want. Mm
3: -hmm. And I can't,
2: I cannot see myself going back home Even if someone paid me a million dollars, like, (laughs) that's not enough for Saadis. Yeah, yeah.
4: It is the land of opportunities here. So what's your relationship with your African culture now?
2: Now, to be completely honest, I'm not so much in touch with my Ethiopian side, Mm -hmm. because I feel one of the most important parts of culture is people and relationships. Mm -hmm. And because that was cut off at such a young age, I don't feel like I have much of a connection. You know, I've still inherited my skin, my hair, my features from my father but that's that that's about it you mm-hmm. know the language I don't have the culture I don't have
4: did you have a hard time at some point in terms of identity crisis with your double culture and
2: not so much identity crisis but I do remember growing up in Australia and wondering how Australian am I I'm not really Australian because mm-hmm. Australians here for one There's obviously the real Australians are the indigenous but then there's just not many of them, and the majority of Australia are white Australians. Mm-hmm. And then when they see anyone who's not white, they'll be like, "Where are you from? Ah, mm. oh, I'm from here. No, where are you really from? Oh, yeah, that yeah. question that so many of so many people of color get all the time. It's it's exhausting. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know. So it feels awkward to call myself Australian. It feels awkward to call myself Ethiopian. It mm-hmm. feels awkward to call myself Vietnamese because oh. I'm not like a hundred percent. Yeah. any of them you know mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. they're all part of who I am and I don't want to figure out what percentage mm-hmm. you know
4: the, the way I dealt with it with my in my own experience because that question is like every time people were like oh Tuasi, that's not a very French name and you're in the middle of class and you're like mm-hmm. that, that question or oh, they would guess oh mm-hmm. that's uh, that's Chinese isn't it and they're <laughs> so proud of it. Like, it and you don't realize how annoying it is until you actually leave the country mm-hmm. and you experience like the first time I went to Vietnam and I was Actually, it was bad because people thought I was American. Because <laughs> I was like, a little fat kid and, you know, like, obviously not Vietnamese. And when I went to Canada, mm-hmm. people thought, like, now they consider me French. And when I was in France, they considered me Chinese because they make no difference between Asian cultures. And so the way I dealt with it, because at the beginning, I was, like, trying to give myself percentage. You know, mm-hmm. like, okay, so person, this percent of that and that. And then I was like, you know, the best way that I dealt with it was, like, I'm going to be... Whichever culture I want to be mm-hmm. when it's the best for me, mm-hmm. and fuck everybody.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that, that's
4: the key. You yeah, know? So, <laughs> it is. So now I'm I'm Vietnamese when it's when it's the best. I'm French when it's the best for me, and there's always someone that is gonna be like, oh, but you're not, and, and mm. fun, you know,
2: fuck you. Honestly, the key to figuring out your identity, and when I I realized that when I was here in Vietnam, it's just not to give a shit. Yeah, you, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. when you start caring so much about what other people say, then you start to justify and find Mm -hmm. evidence and that's just a waste of your time your energy Mm -hmm. that you could be focusing on so many other things Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Yeah, Yeah. how did your mom feel about you coming here? She cried (laughs) (laughs) So much she even offered to refund the price of my ticket. She said please just stay. It's so dangerous. Mm -hmm. Don't go to Vietnam
4: Has she been back?
2: Uh, She has she came back during Tet last year.
4: Okay. Yeah, she loved it She wants
2: to retire here, but obviously she wants How I see it is, my mum, as a first daughter, I have an obligation to her for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, not just for the rest of her life, but also the rest of my life as well. (laughs) So I've got to look after her, I've got to look after, I've got five siblings, I've got to look after my siblings for her. She's constantly asking me every time we call, when are you coming back?
4: You're the oldest in your family.
2: Yes, I'm the eldest and I'm also... Female. Mm-hmm. That is like a curse in an Asian family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know,
4: a lot of my friends, the Vietnamese friends, female friends, that are the oldest in the family, actually go through a lot of pressure.
2: Definitely. So how do you handle that? I think
4: you don't because notice. yeah. Can we <laughs> like can notice. we like explain this a little Sorry, bit let's more? Let's Shush explain for the white American. people. <laughs> <laughs> let's explain to the
2: All right, so um, growing up, female, and the eldest child. Of immigrant parents means you have the pressure not just the pressure but it's the necessity you need to be helping your parents mm-hmm. with whatever yeah. because they're in a foreign country English is in their first language or French is not their first language you are their point of contact mm-hmm. between the outside world and the family mm-hmm. you know some parents they have they more or less can get around but there are things like for example growing up I had to talk to the telephone company I had to talk to people about the electrical bill I had to talk to my parents and also, like, teachers at teacher parent meetings. Sometimes my mom, she didn't even come, you know. She's (laughs) like, what's the point of me coming when I won't understand anything? You can just tell me.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Mm.
2: And, like, being female, you are expected to look after your family in the same capacity as a second mother.
3: Mm. Mm. Yeah.
2: So it wasn't just helping my mom do chores around the house. It was also literally raising my siblings as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And making my mom's life as comfortable as possible. Mm -hmm. That's not
4: even for a... It is the it, even more pressure, I think, for immigrant parents, but even mm. Vietnamese traditional culture It's like the oldest person in the yeah. family, the oldest son or daughter has to protect the family technically
1: mm. Imagine so, Cinderella
2: hmm
1: That's mm.
4: us
2: Yeah
4: <laughs> That's Oh good, my god bad. I don't know that because I'm the youngest in my family, so mm. I was the one that could go and go And
2: with. also because you're not female Yeah Because as a female child you're expected to do so much. In my house, I remember being like eight years old and like shouting at my mom, getting angry, mm-hmm. saying, why didn't you get Joseph and Jordan, my brothers, to do it, you know? Because they were right. only a year or two younger. Mm-hmm. My mom said, you know what she said? They're boys. They don't know. Cool.
3: <laughs>
2: exactly. Ooh. So often... In Vietnamese culture, girls are raised to do everything. Whereas boys are allowed to kick their feet up Mm -hmm. and be helpless and have the women look after them.
1: Mm.
2: Yeah, so you had to grow up really quickly. Oh yeah, for sure.
4: This is interesting, very interesting too. Because I didn't experience that. I I lost my mom when I was very young, so we had to do everything. But I remember now going to my friends, Vietnamese friend's place for Christmas and I started washing the dishes after Mm -hmm. the dinner. And all the women were looking at me was like, what are you doing? <laughs>
2: <laughs> they are probably like, do you have a girlfriend? I know someone. <laughs> uh, you
4: know, yeah, it's like, go sit down. This, is, this yeah. is a job for the woman. And I'm like, "Whoa, wow, I, I wasn't raised like that. Mm. But now I can see the... Uh, I, yeah, I didn't understand that.
2: Mm. Yeah. So it literally broke my mother's heart when I was mm. leaving to go to Vietnam to live my own life.
4: Did she come to uh, Australia because of the war or what did she uh, Yeah,
2: Yeah, so our grandfather actually came over first. Mm -hmm. He was the one who escaped and went to several refugee camps passing through Malaysia before finally going back, uh, going to Australia and then he started building his life there and because the laws at the time were quite favorable to immigrants, especially Vietnamese immigrants, he was able to bring the rest of my family over to Australia safely Mm -hmm. and comfortably. So when
1: you decided to come to Vietnam, what were your expectations and what
2: were your intentions coming here? The main reason was sort of as an apology to myself and to my culture, because I spent so many years being ashamed of being Vietnamese, Mm -hmm. not just Vietnamese, but being Vietnamese, being Ethiopian, being so dark, having curly hair, just Mm -hmm. looking different and not and having having a culture. You know mm-hmm. I want to dig into that a
1: little bit because earlier you were talking about when you were a child you were very confident and carefree about it mm-hmm. and didn't seem to care so much what other people think but then there's the other side of feeling
2: that shame mm-hmm. so where was the shame coming in the shame was definitely behind closed doors mm-hmm. yeah because as a survival mechanism it will, you needed to be strong mm-hmm. and put up this front to show people that you're not bothered And when people see that you're breaking down or that their words actually affect you, Mm -hmm. then it's easier for them to exploit that and to make the situation even worse. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at what age did you realize that
1: you were holding on to this shame and using a defense mechanism?
2: Not until much later. Yeah. I remember being like nine years old and having my mom pick me up from school. And then I was just so embarrassed you know, as a child, I was embarrassed to be seen with my mother because, one, she dressed different. Two, she looked different. Three, she barely spoke yeah. English mm. and it was heavily accented. And I remember shouting at her, saying, Mom, can't you just be normal? Mm. And at the time, normal in my head, it meant white, you know, mm. just like all the other white kids with their white parents. Yeah. But it wasn't until I was like 16, 17 that I realized where so much of this came from
4: this quest for normality yeah my father used to tell me you'll never change the color of your skin stop trying you know i
2: I wish i had someone to tell me that yeah have you ever had a conversation with your mom about those times no even when i try to talk to my mom about issues or just about something that goes beyond what needs to be done because i feel a lot of our conversations is just based around necessity
3: Mm.
2: even when i try she either avoids the subject or she keeps it short and sweet and she moves
4: on mm. yeah, yeah. V- Vietnamese is traditional I mean like the Vietnamese post-war generation I think we're not very used to talk about emotions at all
2: definitely my father
4: would just duck it so well yeah. <laughs> so I got got something it's to do like, yeah no go, go study because you need like you know everything was about physical appearance and like mm-hmm. you know education and mm-hmm. all those things and yeah every childhood trauma that you could have no that didn't exist it's like be yeah. strong don't cry and move on <laughs>
2: And hold it all inside.
4: Mm, yeah. So you started. So your quest of being more vulnerable started at nineteen when you came to Vietnam.
2: Um, it started slowly over the years. So when I was nine, we moved from what was rural Australia or at least small town Australia to the inner city, which was much more multicultural, much more diverse. That's when I found out that, oh my God, there are so many other people who are Vietnamese, (laughs) Chinese, there were Indians, there were Sudanese, and I was just mind blown to see people who ate the same food as I did. Mm -hmm. You know, who had also like mothers and fathers who didn't speak perfect English. Some homes similar to mine, they didn't even have a father in the picture, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was just so comforting to find a space where there were people like me.
1: So coming to Vietnam then with this mindset of, To use your words, making an apology to yourself and your culture, what were some of the first feelings that you had coming here and what were some of the first things you did
2: coming here maybe to make that apology? So when I came here, it was for firstly to discover my roots and also secondly to just connect in any way that I could with. Being Vietnamese and for me that was through language and also through connections so I met with my mother's side of the family so like her like grandparents grandma and grandpa both of their sides of the family just going to visit them see them speak with them see how they live and also travel around the country myself mm-hmm. and try because at the time my Vietnamese was terrible yeah no 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 it was survival Vietnamese yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, it took up until now and even now, like, my Vietnamese is good, but, like, there's still so many things I don't understand. Mm. Yeah, it's a process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And did you have any idea
1: that you would end up going down this entrepreneurial route here? Or what was, nope. what was the plan, the, like, the
2: initial plan coming here? I mean, two years ago, my plan... Because I came to Vietnam first on holiday, second time was on holiday, and then because both times I loved it so much, I decided, you know what, this has got to be my every day. It seemed like Vietnam was the most obvious option, you know, to live the life that I truly wanted, the one that was closest to my vision of how I want to live and also honouring the child that I was Mm -hmm. and the woman that I want to be.
4: You're saying all the right sentences and and, and the emotion connects with it and that's that's the difference. I've met a lot of people at at your age and I did the same thing at your age. I was like, yeah, I'm going to go live in Vietnam and I was saying the right thing, but my heart wasn't there at all. All I wanted was to go to Vietnam. Party and prove myself. (laughs) And I'll do all this stupid shit. But like you're actually putting words uh, to action, and it's 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 quite amazing.
2: It also takes time and mistakes as well. Mm -hmm, You know, or sometimes it takes other people to open your eyes. Mm -hmm. For example, two years ago, I wasn't thinking about doing my own fashion business. I was thinking of following my plan B, which was to be a French teacher. Because back Mm -hmm. in Australia, I was teaching French in high school, and then when I came here, I still wanted to do that. Mm-hmm. And because I had no idea what to do I was like okay let's continue studying let's get a master's degree so I applied to a few international schools and obviously when you see someone who's 20 and only has like I think at the time we had two years of experience they weren't particularly impressed yeah so what I did instead was I applied to be an English teacher and I did the degrees the training to get that mm-hmm. and on the side I taught French, French. yeah, yeah. To international school teachers. So when did the idea start to come to start a fashion label? Um, pretty much what happened in Vietnam I just saw there were so many stores that had amazing clothes and lots of really cool local brands but just none of them had my size mm. you know. So what most people do is just go to a tailor and they tell them okay I want something like this can you do this for me and then go fabric shopping and then when I started doing that it was just Things just grew from there. Mm. Yeah. I had so many friends and colleagues and even like random people, they'd be like, whoa, when they saw what I was wearing, <laughs> they'd be like, oh, yeah, this is just something I did. And then people started asking me, hey, can you? do you think you can do that for me? Mm-hmm. It's like, um, yeah, sure. And it only started getting big when my boyfriend was like, hey, you should get a website. Mm. I'm like, why? He's like, to display your stuff you don't even need to sell yourself, but just to display it so you can you have a record and other people can see what you're doing, too hmm and is that when you really started to put a name to it? Like the dynasty the label name like figuring oh, things that... figuring things out took so much time Yeah, you know, sure. like setting up my website Obviously I had my boyfriend to help but it was just the platform was so slow and like there were so many little things that I didn't even I had no idea you know, and people say you should test, 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 and I did test. But like, for example, I had a customer ask me, "Hey, why is shipping eight hundred dollars?" I was like, "It's meant to be eight hundred k." So like in VND, that's only okay, like forty dollars. <laughs> yeah. So just so many things. The thing is, you don't really know how to do things mm-hmm. until you're doing them.
1: Yeah. You know, mm-hmm.
2: like you, you're gonna make mistakes, and that's part of the process. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah.
2: For sure. Yeah. So, how did you choose the name Dynasty of the Label? I wanted something that reflected my roots,
3: mm-hmm.
2: yeah, something regal, something royal, and something a bit like Asian as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when I was thinking of dynasty, I was thinking of like, for example, the Nguyen dynasty mm-hmm. or like the Lê dynasty. Mm-hmm. I want the people who are wearing my clothes and also when I wear my clothes, because I'm going to be honest here, like when I design something, I design it like 90% of the time for myself. You know, and like if people love it, okay. (laughs) Because that's kind of the formula that I've been doing since day one. So when I design stuff, I want the person wearing it to feel strong, to feel powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And also to display Asian culture. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And was there always the... The drive to have it very sustainable and ethical
2: from the start definitely from the start because Mm -hmm. one of the reasons why I've decided to make it the way it is and not make it mass-produced is because connections are so important to me and like being able to know who the people are that are helping to make my business work and also to build relationships with them as well Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah amazing so
1: for those who maybe don't know, can you kind of talk about what the problems are in the in the mass producing typical fashion industry as it is now and what the difference is between, I guess, regular fashion and sustainable fashion. Mm-hmm. I'm not
2: sure if I'm using the correct term- terminology. Honestly, I don't even know where we start because there's just (laughs) so many problems. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing is, it's not just with fast fashion. It's also with high-end fashion brands as well. Mm. Because even retailers like Louis Vuitton and like uh, Gucci, Yves Saint Laurent, like big name brands, the way that they source their labor and source their materials, it's very opaque. So even though they say we use stuff from sustainable suppliers Mm. and we... Don't use child labor, things like that. If you actually trace the supply chain, it just often the products and the services get pushed off onto subcontractors. Mm-hmm. And with subcontractors, you can't always guarantee the quality and the if the people behind it are being paid a living wage.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: that's one of the things that makes me really disappointed is because big brands have so much power. They have Mm. so much influence. They have the resources to do things right, Mm. you know? Mm. And, for example, during COVID last year and Mm. even now, there were so many big-name brands who refused to pay on orders that they'd already put out. Mm. So lots of factory workers. So usually the people who are at the very bottom of the supply chain, they're the Mm. ones who lost out. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I remember seeing a statistic that said in the past year, like I think over 70% of Garment workers, they had to. They either A, didn't have enough money for food like one day a week or they had to borrow money so they could mm. cover their living expenses. And then when I see uh, an item, for example, there was like the $1 bikini or like a, a T-shirt for $5, then mm-hmm. when I look at that, it just – something doesn't sit right, you know, because how can you sell something for such a low price? And the answer is obvious. It's, mm-hmm. They're stealing wages and it's just – Slave labor. Mm -hmm. I wish there were just better options for garment workers, and the way that we can make this possible is by demanding better. Mm -hmm. So, how does your label do things differently? So, I know who I buy my fabric from. For starters, I always, I'm usually the person who buys it as well. If it's not me, then it's my tailors, and it's always with more or less the same people. So, for example, today I went fabric shopping, and it's. With the woman who I've been working with for the past three years, I came today. I saw she was eating uh, bunmi like a sandwich. I was like, "Oh my god, that looks so good!" She's like, "Here, have one." And mm-hmm. she just nice. like gave me a bunmi. So just little connections like that as well. Having people you work with regularly and also treating them well, paying them the price that they ask for, mm-hmm. and not trying to bargain or ask for a discount as well. Mm-hmm. And then so on top-
4: you don't bargain at all. No. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Because, like, these people I've been working with for so long and also they okay. give me such a good price anyways. Mm,
4: yes. Yeah. So how did you know it was a good price at the beginning? I didn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: only afterwards that when, um, for example, if they don't have it, then I'd ask other suppliers mm-hmm. and they'd give me a price that's either, like, 50% more, Absolutely. sometimes, like, double the price. So it's
4: through, re- re- through research. Yeah. Okay. It's
2: just through figuring it out.
4: Because yeah, the bargaining culture for me is, is very... Yeah. It's
2: The thing is, a lot of the time here, people will already... Factor in that you will bargain with them.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. you know,
2: mm-hmm. but how I see it is It's not that big of a margin
3: mm-hmm. and
2: like I am a foreigner. I live a good life here yeah. I make enough more than enough to support myself So it doesn't make a difference if I pay like an extra dollar or two for fabric and then i um, on top of that then I work with my tailors and I've talked to them and I wanted them to set their own wages but they refused. <laughs> they uh-huh. said, no, you can pick the wage. And yeah, I'm like, but... Because the thing is, I already know how much the industry standard is. Mm-hmm. And so instead of giving them what is the industry standard, I give them at least like 30, maybe 60% more. Yeah. And mm-hmm. some and like because of this, like they're really happy to work with me and they'll also be like giving me little presents here and there, like making like a little dress like to give to me.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Uh-huh. And they're like... So- I'm pretty lucky, you know, because working with tailors is notoriously difficult, Mm -hmm. but these two are just... Why? Okay, to find these two tailors, their husband and wife team, I had to go through so many other tailors. Mm -hmm. So tailors, for example, instead of saying, sorry, I can't do it, So they can't do the design, they can't like do it on time, they'll either give it back to you really late Mm -hmm. or they'll do it wrong. I had a tailor who like left needles inside the work that she gave back to me. There was another one who did the lining of a jacket inside out. Mm -hmm. There was another one who just like made the sleeves of this thing like way too long. And when you ask them like, oh, hey, like what's wrong? Is there anything I can help with? Do you need more time Mm -hmm. communication? Can be really difficult. There's
4: a a lack of attention to details sometimes. Mm -hmm. Japanese workmanship. I generalised a lot right now, but it's an experience that most of us would have, like you know, with Japanese workmanship. Mm. If you don't micromanage, sometimes it's really hard to get what you want. And when you get someone that actually gets it.
2: It's like a unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. <Exactly. laughs> definitely.
4: So did you have that same wage strategy with all of them or did you, it's because you had that experience that you...
2: It's because I had that yeah, experience. Yeah. So with the other tailors, I asked them to set their own wages mm-hmm. and they would just charge me whatever was the industry standard mm-hmm. and that didn't work out. And yeah. so there was... The peak of it was two years ago during Tet. So I was working with this tailor who, at first, she did a really good job. But then slowly, she just started taking so much time with orders. She started doing things wrong. And then there was this one big order that I needed to send to Australia before the end of the year. And I was going to go bring it myself because I was getting on a flight there. Mm -hmm. And then she was like, okay, don't worry. I'll have it to you by Friday. And then on Friday, I called her. I'm like, hey, is it ready to go? She's like, I can give it to you tomorrow and then I call her tomorrow and then like the next day in the morning she was like up oh, tonight tonight I'm like okay sure then I called her at yeah. night and then it just kept going like that until I was already in Australia
4: mm-hmm. yeah so
2: she never ended up giving me the fabric or the designs mm-hmm. back yeah mm-hmm. and so because of that I had to find new tailors and also just recoup whatever I could
3: mm-hmm.
2: but I'm grateful that happened you know because if that hadn't happened then I wouldn't have met the amazing tailors that I work mm-hmm. with today mm-hmm. So I guess going
1: back to ethical and sustainable fashion, how can we as consumers be more conscious in all of that and helping to, you know, help these garment workers who are being exploited?
2: Sign petitions, raise awareness, also with how we shop. Mm -hmm. as well so instead of spending money at big name retailers then go find the sustainable ethical alternative Mm -hmm. you know and sometimes it's not possible that's okay but um we have so many other options for example for shopping or like buying secondhand at like market sales Mm -hmm. yeah so buying something new really should be the last option you know Mm -hmm. if we can alter it if we can swap if we can borrow then Do that. Do all of that instead. Yeah, there's like a few websites out there, like Mm -hmm. Fashion Revolution, and they like to they put out regular updates with petitions and lots of information. So I'd recommend that.
4: It's great to have like those alternatives, and I'm seeing like through the lens of a local Vietnamese, how can I adapt that message so it's understood? You know, it's like do you talk like this to Vietnamese locals, and do they understand it?
2: It depends on who you talk with, Mm -hmm. and also. It depends on like how you approach it as well
4: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah because I feel here the movement towards slow fashion sustainability is it's happening but it's happening quite slowly and I don't feel like Vietnam is on the same page as for example Australia would be
3: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah Mm -hmm. and also here there's such a push for new things you know shiny things whereas back home people are really into thrift shopping thrift shopping yeah, yeah. buying second hand mm-hmm. yeah
4: there is some really good thrift shopping here in oh
2: there's amazing yeah. thrift shops here
4: and I remember telling my girl hey let's go check it out and she mm-hmm. was like no like they call it the
2: no, no say yeah that. exactly and I was like see in it-
4: French is AIDS and I'm like what are you talking like see that stuff and I'm like uh-huh. okay, yeah and then she was like no we don't touch this and
2: Yeah, some people associate, a lot of people, Vietnamese people and other Asians, they associate secondhand with bad energy, with Mm. dead people, with sick people. Mm. Yeah.
4: Yeah, She told me this, and I couldn't disagree with it. Very honestly, (laughs) I couldn't. I was like, yeah, yeah, that's true. Like, you know, maybe I should like burn incense. And I never really thought about it, Mm -hmm. like, you know, in that way. But it makes sense. I don't agree. You don't agree? Yeah. I don't agree. Because
2: in thrift stores, we can find incredible things, you know? Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. But the energy, <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: you okay, yeah. give it new energy
1: it's when true. you wear
4: it. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: At the same time, coming here for me, coming from America to here, I feel like my mind has been open more to reusing things, or even just rather repairing. than things repairing, like rather than you know normally mm-hmm. if my shoe was. Dirty or there was like a scratch on it or something. I'd be like, okay, I like, gotta go buy new shoes It mm-hmm. would never cross my mind that I could go somewhere and just have that fixed And so I literally did that last week and I was mm-hmm. like, oh my god, my shoes look mm-hmm. new again This is like I didn't have to buy new shoes. It's great. So yeah, that's definitely been a big difference for me and in Toutien they often have clothes swaps mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. people can you can bring the clothes that you don't want and then it's just a big like swapping party Ooh, I like that you
2: can yeah. have that we this gotta just true. raise awareness
4: yeah, about
2: yeah. alternatives to just constantly consuming, constantly shopping. Mm-hmm.
4: I think it's also because in the Western culture, it's the cost of repairs uh, are much higher.
2: Mm. It depends.
4: It, like I, in France and in Canada, where where I lived, it was like you would you would tear a hole in your bed or in your sofa, you wouldn't repair it or you would patch it in, uh, in the best way you could. In Vietnam, my cat just ruined my sofa <laughs> and four chairs, and it cost me like a hundred dollars to actually re.
2: Reupholster? Yeah. And yes. I was like
4: amazed. And the people came to the house and they did it in the, for like two hours. And I was like, yeah. the cost of like making stuff is actually much cheaper. Here.
2: Definitely. I think we have that privilege here where we can access services such as repairs mm. for s- such an affordable price. Yeah. One of the big reasons with online shopping, especially people in the States, I've got so many friends. What they'll do is they'll buy one swimsuit in three sizes mm. because they don't know which size they are. And then they'll just return the two other swimsuits that don't fit. Mm-hmm. And usually, what big retailers will do is they'll just get rid of it. <laughs> whatever they, whatever customers send back, they just send to the landfill. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, yeah. A lot of time that happens, and that's just because of the sizing issue.
3: Mm. So
2: one way that we can change that mm-hmm. and change like. All this waste going to the landfill is by offering like flexible sizes or by doing things made to measure or just having consumers whip out their measuring tape
3: mm-hmm. and
2: taking the time to measure themselves and knowing what their measurements are
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah
2: so well. just shopping but consciously yeah
1: yeah just yeah. yeah. well, shopping awesome so do you currently only have
2: customers in Vietnam you ship worldwide? I do ship worldwide. Uh, the funny thing is I only have about like 20, maybe 30% of my customer base here in Vietnam. Mm. And then like 70, 80% of my customer base is overseas. Most of them are in the States. Ah, Yeah. Okay. And um, because of this sizing issue and because like I do want people to shop with confidence and also wear clothes that fit, here in Vietnam, I'll with our tailors, we offer free repairs. And also with overseas customers, what we do is we give... Customers uh, store credit, so they can go to a local seamstress tailor and get alterations if necessary.
3: Mm.
2: It's only in the past like year and a half of running business. It's only happened twice mm-hmm. where there's been a customer and like something didn't fit. So I just like sent them a link and be like, okay, you can mm-hmm. go here. Let me know how much it is. I'll refund that plus some. Done. Mm. I feel because. My business is so small mm-hmm. it's possible to look after customers in that way mm. yeah
1: and do you plan to keep it that way do you plan to keep things small now, or what do you now. see for the future <laughs>
2: <laughs> so i'm thinking of expanding and finding another fashion designer as well to jump on board so i can focus more on the Marketing and promotion because honestly, one thing no one told me about running your own business is literally 50 maybe 70% promotion. Mm -hmm. You know, like even if you've got the most amazing products out there, Mm -hmm. if people don't know about it, people can't support you. Yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. In terms of
1: planning for the future, your dreams for the future, is there any? help that you need like any well you just said that you're looking for another fashion designer so that's that's one thing if you know anyone (laughs) if anyone's listening out there and they're interested uh is there anything else or any person that you are looking for help with
2: not at the moment but in the future i would like to work with more musicians Mm -hmm. more artists more creatives and see what we can do collabs would be cool it doesn't have to be in vietnam it doesn't have to be in Vietnam. Yeah. What would you do with musicians uh for example i'm actually getting a package ready for a musician in the states at the moment she's uh blasian like i am so african and uh asian as well she's filipino and her african side i can't remember exactly which which country it is there's so many really? but anyways. <laughs> um yeah so she's a really cool music artist she's like really she's just awesome mm-hmm. um yeah so i'm gonna be sending some stuff over to her and she wants to wear that stuff in her music videos and also like when she performs so that sort of thing so and also cool. like yeah it is cool there's also like a performance artist here in vietnam he's a uh, indian-american and mm-hmm. he's uh into gai lùng, which is like the oh, wow. yeah know it's uh, the yeah. vietnamese style of singing from the countryside and it sounds mm-hmm. like really like uh, yeah yeah, yeah. 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 So um, I've been doing like quite a few clothes for him. You should check out his page. He's on YouTube, Gon Sao, official, Facebook as well. Mm Yeah.
4: There's an American video uh, rapper, Black. His name is Mix Miyagi. Do you hear his song? Uh, is
2: He's Black, he's right? He's Black, yeah. And yeah. exactly. he's from the States. He's from the yeah, States. Yeah, I see. He's like, calls like so many waves here in Vietnam. People are like, whoa, yeah. look at him.
4: I reached out to him on Instagram. I was like, I love your music, man. And he answered to me. And I was like,
2: yeah, oh. You, man.
4: Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, maybe you can uh, collab with him. Yeah, you should reach out to him. Yeah
1: who would you say is your support system like throughout this whole entrepreneurial journey who do you kind of have this is to ac's favorite question yes. i just, <laughs> just stole it from him but <laughs> who do you kind of have on your team support
2: not not like your business team but like your emotional support team my boyfriend he's like on every single team possible you know like he's been there from the beginning and he's always there to lend a hand with literally absolutely anything mm-hmm. it's Absolutely incredible, you know, to find someone who is so supportive. Literally, like, he gives ride or die a whole different meaning, Mm -hmm. you know, because I find in so many relationships, not just in romantic relationships, but also platonic relationships, Mm -hmm. when you have someone who is shining so bright, who's doing such incredible things, sometimes the other person can feel intimidated or threatened by that.
3: Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. And... In return because you don't want to upset the other person you feel like you have to shrink yourself and dim your light Mm
3: -hmm. yeah Yeah. in my
2: previous relationship I was with someone who was kind of the opposite of what I am so I'm quite extroverted I love to speak with people and I'm like a shiny Mm -hmm. social butterfly whereas he was the opposite you know like he was really quiet and when we were in social situations he'd get really anxious and then he'd feel like he was dragging like bringing me down and then he felt bad for that. And then I felt bad for that. And then like, I wouldn't want to go out because I'd upset him. And then, yeah. Mm-hmm. But to have someone who's just so, who's like your cheerleader and who's like pushing you to do like so much and supporting you along the way.
4: Very good. Any, anyone else part of your support system?
2: Uh, besides from him, I mean, my closest friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my friends from back home. Shout out to uh, Helen and Jen. I love you guys. <laughs> and also shout out to Abby as well. She's my flatmate. She puts up with like so much of myself and like rambling and ranting and like putting mm-hmm. fabric in like the weirdest corners around the house. <laughs> yeah.
4: Yeah. And um, is your mom supportive of your dinner? Uh, <laughs>
2: I really think she knows what I do, yeah, it's <laughs> <You know? laughs> Like she just sees the picture she's like, "Oh yeah, that looks nice." When are you mm. coming back? Oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's also pretty funny because um, my little brother, who's two years younger than me, he's doing what I'm doing as well, but back in Australia. But instead of having a team, he's doing it all himself. Mm. Yeah, so he gets fabrics from thrift stores and he like cuts it up and he uses his own sewing machine he designs it and like he figures it out all in his head like how to make like he's doing like bags mostly but Mm. yeah he does like other stuff too Mm. but it's super inspiring to see I'm inspired by my little brother you know Mm. seeing him like build his own brand just by himself Mm.
4: how do you keep yourself creative
2: Uh, just being open yeah being Mm. open to life being curious I find photography helps as well So when you go outside and if you've got like your phone in your hand or like a camera and you're always looking for inspiration, you know, because inspiration is all around us. We just have to be open and receptive to it. Mm
1: -hmm. And are there any daily habits or practices you have that
2: keep you in a good mental space, keep you in a creative space? I like to go for walks in the park. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I usually go for a walk in the park like every other day and also physical contact. Mm -hmm. So I love like getting hugs.
1: Mm. Well, I want to wrap it
2: up here. So
1: if people want to work with you and follow you, how can they find you?
2: Woo! Yeah. Y'all can find me at dynastythelabel.com. We have a little chat function, or you can just email me straight away. So dynasty.thelabel at gmail.com. Y'all can also find me on IG Dynasty the label, and FB Dynasty the label. <laughs>
3: Yes.
2: Nice. Love it.
1: And we have one final question that we are asking all of the guests moving forward. So, how would you describe Saigon in three words?
2: Vibrant, chaotic, <laughs> home. Nice. Very
0: nice. That. Thank you so much, Thank Kimmy. You. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Creators in Saigon. If you liked this episode, Become a part of our mission to inspire others by leaving a five-star rating and review in Apple Podcasts and sharing this episode with your friends on social media. This one small act can truly make a difference in someone's life. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and see you next time.